It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist and human futures fellow at the College of Health and Medicine. And today we have a very special guest with our podcast, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But before I introduce our guest, I'd really like to share with you a story from a recent event. Listeners might know that I've worked and lived and been connected to the Riverina in New South Wales for many years. Through a series of serendipitous moments recently, I was so lucky to be invited to join an information evening for the voice referendum that was held in Wagga just recently. The evening began with the didgeridoo filling the theatre in Wagga and a generous welcome from Auntie Isabel, a Wurundjeri elder. Uncle Hewitt Wyburn, the Wagga elder, talked of his childhood, his brothers and sisters taken away by the state, his experience fighting for Australia in Vietnam, and talked profoundly of why constitutional recognition is so important for Indigenous peoples around Australia. We then went on to hear stories from Joe Williams, NRL star and former boxer, now mental health ambassador, talking about their mental health and physical health gap for Indigenous people and why constitutional recognition is key to closing that gap. Peter Stapleton talked about his experiences forming the Aboriginal Legal Service in the 1970s and the extraordinary injustice perpetrated at that time and sort of what progress has been made. And finally, Tony McAvoy, SC, joined us in talking about the referendum process and really mentioning to the, te- to the group there in Wagga why constitutional recognition will be a great thing for Australia. I shared with the room my experiences of life in Wagga and the extraordinary generosity of the Wiradjuri people sharing long, long, long knowledge of people and place the connection between people and place being so important, and the idea of Yindinmara, a concept that Stan Grant has now explained to so many of us, really informing how we might care for each other and respect people and place going forward. There so, was so much love in the Civic Theatre in Wagga Wagga, regional New South Wales, love and respect for community, for people and place, and a deep hope for our future. At the end of the evening, I walked out into the open space that's there between the theatre and the library, a space at the moment filled with the coloured lights for the Festival of Wagga. 
Music of the didgeridoo filled the air last night as people celebrated what had been an extraordinary first yes event for the referendum in Wagga. Last night helped me imagine Australia's future after we vote yes in the referendum. The power of imagination is so important when we're tackling complex problems. We live in a time which is filled, of course, with these difficult challenges. So learning to see diverse perspectives on problems and to imagine and explore new solutions is so important as we see the flaws in the old ways of doing things deeply exposed with issues like robo-debt, the Cooper challenge in our tax department and watching our public service begin to reinvent and reinvigorate itself. Welcome to our mini-series on reimagining social policy. Today's guest is well known to our listeners. Professor Sharon Bessel is a professor here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. She's the director of the Children's Policy Centre, and in 2019, she was named as one of the Australian Financial Review's Women of Influence. She is an extraordinary co-host here for this podcast, and it's amazing to have her on the other side of the microphone to share her thoughts on social policy and on how reimagining will help us create our best future. Welcome, Sharon. It's so great to have you on the pod. Hi, Anna Greta. What a beautiful introduction. And it's really wonderful to be here. It's exciting to be on the other side of the mic to talk about some of the issues that I research and teach on and love to talk about. It's a little daunting too. I don't know what you're going to ask me. (laughs) Well, Sharon, I'm sure we'll be able to work on some questions together. I would really, there's so many things that I would love to talk to you about, uh, uh, but I think today we might start with some of those issues that I've touched on in the introduction. Sharon, the report on the Royal Commission into the robo-debt problem was released just prior to recording this episode. It's been a busy week. And we will, of course, be in discussion on the implications of the report recommendations in greater depth on coming episodes. I'm sure it's a theme that we will continue to come back to. But I wonder if we can begin our conversation today with what allowed a set of policy decisions to be taken that created such human misery, as Janine O'Flynn described it on an episode earlier this year. What has happened in our government that allowed this to take place? Oh, Anna Greta, I, I think this is a case that we will talk about for many years to come um, and reflect on on what went so very, very wrong and why it went so very, very wrong. And Anna Greta, I think I'd start by saying we often say that it's impossible to imagine how awful something is. But as we've heard what people experience through robo-debt, I think many of us can imagine, at least in a limited way, just how disempowering and how devastating that experience was for people. And we use the term disempowering a lot, But when your democratically elected government demands payment of debts that you have not incurred, that they are demanding illegally and immorally, then disempowering in the truest and the deepest sense of the word is is what we have. And so what happened to people is unthinkable. But I think we can all imagine the fear and the desperation that people experienced. And as you said, Janine O'Flynn summed that up so concisely when she spoke of the human misery created. So, you know, Anna Greta, you, you asked what, what led us to this. Essentially, it was a series of policy decisions 
And I think we need to go back in history to understand how those decisions played out because they're broader than robo-debt itself. And they were taken under successive governments from both sides of politics and they were decisions that made us a harsher and a crueler society when it comes to people who were considered to be unproductive or not contributing to our society. And so if I could, I'd like to just go back a little in history. You know, we spoke to Kim Rubenstein a little while back about the Constitution, and she talked so powerfully about some of those issues of history. So let's just go back a little way. And Australia has always been characterised as a mix of what's been described as individualism and egalitarianism. So egalitarianism and ideas of, of a fair go are so deeply important in Australia, but of course they've not been applied to everyone. And we know that. We know that the treatment of Indigenous people speaks to to how those principles have not been applied to everyone so powerfully and so painfully. And Anna Greta, you highlighted in your introduction um, some of that, and I can't stop thinking of those stories of injustice we heard from Catherine Little when we spoke to her, those heartbreaking stories of, of the stolen children. But ideas of fairness have been embedded into our national psyche, and we should recognise that and be proud of it. You know, we can go way back to 1907 and the Harvester decision that set a living wage to support an unskilled worker and his wife and three children to allow them to be fed, housed and clothed. Now, of course, that decision was of its time. It's pretty sexist in its language now, but it set the basis for the national minimum wage system. And for probably three quarters of a century, there was an acceptance in Australia that sometimes people need help. They need support from their government and government should provide that when people are in need. There was also this value of individuals looking after themselves, of being resourceful and independent, not in the kind of libertarian way that we see perhaps in the United States where there's no role for the state. And we see some of those ideas of a balance between egalitarianism and individualism playing out in things like Medicare, in income contingent loans for tertiary education, and those things are based on that combination of state and individual contribution. But then if we move on towards the end of the 20th century, we start to see a real shift where individual responsibility begins to trump state responsibility. And successive governments on both sides of politics took decisions that made benefits lower and made conditionality harsher. And those policy decisions were accompanied by really pejorative and damaging language. You know, Anna Greta, I'm sure you remember as I do, Joe Hockey, when he was treasurer, making comments about lifters and leaners. Scott Morrison's comments about us providing hand-ups, not handouts. Those comments, and they're just a couple of the more memorable ones, shifted narratives and they tried to reshape public opinion. They demonised the poor. They blamed people for their own situations. And once we start to demonise people who are doing it tough, once we start to dehumanise people who are in need of and are entitled to support, then we can see that inhuman and dehumanising policies become a possibility. And I think that's what we saw in RoboDebt that creeping advance of institutionalised harshness and cruelty leading to policy decisions that were designed to punish people considered to be worthless. 
and the misery that was created was acceptable because it was a continuation, not an abrupt change. That such a thing can happen is both horrifying, but when we we think about that slow creep and the dangerous narratives that, that emerged, we can see how it happened. Encouraging, I think, is the way that we're now seeing responses and language and values shifting and being very different. Sharon, that's one of the most extraordinary descriptions I've heard of the process that led us to RoboDebt and the way in which it became an acceptable form of public policy. And I think that's why we're talking about it today, and I'm sure we'll continue to come back to it, is because it did become an acceptable form of public policy. It's now recognised as an unacceptable form of public policy, but we really do need to critique and deeply analyse what it was that took us there from a fairness approach, an approach where we care for everybody, to a, an environment in which, as you described, we were demonising and dehumanising our fellow person. So as we come to terms collectively with the abuses that have been perpetrated against people through the robo-debt process, we're also in the midst of one of the PwC scandal whereby one of the world's largest firms undertaking consultancies for government passed on confidential information about proposed public policy to private clients, apparently for its own profit-making interests. Sharon, can and should we tie these things together? Look, Ali Greta, I think we can and and I think we should tie them together. Um, They're both absolutely shocking but in some ways not surprising um, because they are both a symptom of the kinds of systems that have been built over time. And I think that both of these things are about the decay of values in two in two areas that are really critical to social policy. And so both of those things, that robo-debt and the the, the really outrageous behaviour of PwC, are about a complete absence of any sense of accountability. And they're also about a lack of any sense of commitment to the, the common good or the public interest. And so there's there's a lot sitting behind the PwC scandal, um, including shifts towards new public management, widespread outsourcing, assumptions that the private se- sector can do it better, and importantly, do it cheaper than the public sector. Um, and of course, Janino Flynn talked about all of those things with us, Anna Greta. But essentially, there is no there are no serious accountability mechanisms sitting around those private sector actors. And there's also a failure to recognise that big corporations, many of whom operate globally, are first and foremost driven by a profit motive. They are not driven by a public sector motivation. No, their their reason for being is to make profit for their shareholders. And so once we have those big players so central to public policy making, I think we start to see tensions emerged. And of course, that's what we're seeing um, in the PwC um, scandal. And so policy advice and social policy in particular, which impacts the lives of all of us, but is particularly felt by those who are in need of government support, are no longer about the common good. They're no longer about public service. 
And they're no longer about governments being accountable back to their constituents and having a responsibility to look after their constituents. Instead, policy advice becomes just another commodity. And so I think when we put the PwC scandal and robo yet together, we can start to see a picture of the decay of those really critical values, the values that should make social policy about the common good and the public interest, and ultimately about caring for people who need support. Sharon, you're talking about accountability or the lack thereof, humanity or dehumanisation, care or its absence. And it's a remarkable frame through which we can consider the need to really deeply reimagine social policy. Sharon, your research particularly focuses on child poverty. And in Australia, one in six children live in income poverty. How do you think we got to this situation in such a wealthy country? Uh, Look, Anna Greta, I I know you've said how shocked you are when you think of that one in six number. You know, we we think of a classroom of, of 20, 22 children and think that one in six of those children, you know, are living in poverty. That's It's appalling. And it never fails to shock and appall me that Australia can be consistently ranked as one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of assets and asset ownership on global league tables like those put out by Credit Suisse. And yet we accept so many children growing up in poverty. And it wasn't always so, or it hasn't always been so. And and again, I'll go a little way back in history, not quite as far back as the Harvester decision. Um, but if we go back to the late 1990s, what's really striking is that Australia was regarded internationally as one of the countries that was making incredible progress in reducing child poverty. So Australia was compared positively with the United Kingdom and the United States, where progress wasn't being made in in such significant strides. And we were emerging as a global leader in reducing child poverty through more generous benefits um, and through tax benefits and changes that ensured that low-income families could live at a decent standard. So we saw supplements for those low-income families around the cost of living, increases to family payments, and we also saw those payments that people received, government payments, being linked to wage growth. Um, and, of course, that that has stopped in more recent years. And we also saw at that time more generous rent assistance for low-income families, and all those things played a role. And those reforms came in the wake of then Prime Minister Hawke's declaration in the 1987 election campaign that by 1990 no child in Australia should live in poverty. And that comment's often kind of derided these days or used with some jest, but there were actually incredible inroads made. And if our listeners don't mind, I might just use a few numbers here because I think here the numbers are useful to help us to to understand what had happened. So if we think about poverty or child poverty as being those children who live in families where their income is less than 50% of the average after they've paid for housing, we saw child poverty steadily decline from the late 1990s through into around 2003. But then we saw it rise sharply from about 14% of children living in poverty in 2003 
to over 18% just four years later. And the rise in child poverty resulted from the things I was talking about earlier, from lower levels of benefits and from harsher conditionality, and particularly harsher conditionality for sole parents and a whole raft of changes to benefits for low-income families. So here we're seeing those harsher, crueler policies starting to play out. Undergraduate, it's really staggering. Child poverty rates for households that were reliant on government allowances were about 25% in 1993. So that's not great. A quarter of children whose families are reliant on benefits living in poverty. But by 2017... 66% of those children were living in poverty, those children relying on government benefits. That's really shocking. And that is driven by policy decisions. So all the decisions that led to a rise in child poverty are decisions that were consciously taken by successive governments. They were decisions that signalled that as a country, we'd become prepared to let children grow up in poverty and to grow up in the despair that comes with poverty in a wealthy country. And we also saw those policy narratives that I talked about earlier around lifters and leaners, around individual responsibility, and around shame that encouraged us collectively to think that the problem was the problem of those children and their families. But of course, there is no shame, or there should be no shame, placed on children who are growing up in poverty. But there should be great shame and great blame placed on those who make policy decisions that allow child poverty to deepen and who then justify those decisions with trite and glib lines about leaners and about handouts. So we have such high levels of child poverty because of policy decisions. Sharon, you're reminding me of one of the many, many reasons why I really love working with you regularly, which is just how beautifully you paint the picture of how important it is for us to address this issue. I think listeners will have heard us both comment on a number of occasions in the last few years about how poverty is a policy choice and that the insight that we all received through that period uh, during 2020 when poverty was eliminated in Australia with adequate social policy. But when we think about child poverty and we think about what we need to do, Is it just about increasing income or do you think the solutions are broader than that? Uh, Look, Anagretti, yeah, absolutely. Both the the problems and the solutions are broader. I mean, poverty is is always characterised by material hardship or lack um, and that's income or most often income. That's what Ruth Lister, that incredible... um, UK academic and and now member of the House of Lords, what Ruth Lister calls the material core of poverty. But that lack, that lack of income is intertwined with, with other things. And in the research that my team and I have been doing with children over time, and based on the way children talk about their lives and their experiences, we've developed a three-dimensional framework. Um, And those dimensions are around the material basics, around opportunities and around relationships. And undergraduate, I might just talk through what those three dimensions are because I think it helps us to understand how child poverty is about income, but it's also about more. And so the material basics relate to income 
and to things like food security and housing insecurity and the lack of those things. And and today we're hearing children talk about being hungry, about not having enough food, about not having housing. But material basics also relates to the lack of physical infrastructure, things like transport, because there are some things that people can't buy for themselves, even if their incomes increase a little bit. And so public investment, public infrastructure, physical and social, is really important. And we also talk in that framework about opportunities. And opportunities are around whether or not children are able to take part in their communities, whether they are able to access the services and the activities that they need now, but that they also need for their future. And so many children that we work with just don't have opportunities. Sometimes that's because of a lack of money, but very often it's also because of the non-material barriers that they face and the lack of investment in their communities. And so we see children forgoing a whole range of opportunities, not going on school excursions, not playing sport, not doing the things they love, because they never ask, because they don't want to put stress and pressure onto their parents when they know their parents are already struggling. And so what we're seeing is children growing up in a way that's normalising the idea that they need to limit themselves. And that's just not right. And the third dimension that that we focus on is around relationships. And in about 25 years of doing research with children, I've never done research with children where they don't talk about the importance of relationships. And what we see, or, or what we're especially interested in, in the research that we're doing, is the way in which social structures, including patterns of discrimination, and how systems undermine relationships. And those harsher, crueler policies that I've talked about are examples of policies that put pressure on relationships between parents and children and where the stress becomes almost unbearable. And single mums in particular have been targeted by those policies. Um, And Undergrader, you started with that powerful story from Wagga, and maybe I could just share a really brief story now. And this is something that I'll never forget, of interviewing a single mum And she was talking with absolute joy about her adored seven-year-old child. And she talked about the fear of her child turning eight because the conditions of her government benefits would become harsher on her child's eighth birthday. What a terrible policy we put in place where parents and their children were terrified of a birthday. And this mum also talked about hunger, of never knowing where her next meal would come from, of sometimes knowing that her little girl was hungry. She talked about the terror of the possibility that she'd miss a mortgage payment and lose a house that she was only just hanging on to. So she'd managed to buy a house, but she was barely coping with the mortgage repayments. And she said, I sometimes wonder if my child would be better off in foster care because perhaps then she would be fed every day. The only thing that keeps me going is that I know that no one can love her the way I love her. That kind of pain and deprivation is due to a lack of income, but it's not only due to a lack of income. It's about the shame and the blame and the pressure of policies 
that put families, particularly single parent, usually single mum families, under unbearable stress. And so what can we start to do about all of this? The announcement that the harsher conditions and that the lower benefits um, that, that for single parents um, will will be revised has been really important. So those lower payments and harsher um, harsher conditions will no longer kick in when the youngest child is eight, but when a child is 14. So that's really important. A lot of people have argued it doesn't go far enough, but they're really important. But what we really need is wholesale reform. And what we need, particularly in this country, is universal basic services that are available to all and available in high quality to those who need the most. So many of the parents that I work with have decaying teeth. And this is sometimes people in as young as their 30s because they just can't afford a dentist. And that causes physical pain, but it causes shame and it causes stigma. And it keeps those people as being labelled as outside collective care, as being unworthy. And that's really inhuman. And we also need better planning and development regulations so that housing and communities are fit for children, even and perhaps especially when their parents are not on high salaries. And that really matters when governments start to build more social housing. If we build housing that is not fit for children to grow up in, if it's low quality, with no community spaces, with no places for children to play, we're going to deepen the disadvantage that children experience every day, and we're going to be stuck with that for generations to come. We really need to think differently about employment and about economic growth, so that productivity and profit are no longer prioritised over time, care and love. Unagreed to this, there's much, much more that I could say, but I think most importantly, we need to keep changing and challenging those narratives. We need to abandon language of shame and blame. We need to abandon punitive policies that punish people for needing help. And we need to put children and care at the centre. And encouragingly, we are starting to see something of a shift in that direction. So we've got some hope. Listeners, you might, like me, need to take a moment to reflect on the story that Sharon's just shared with us. It's one of the most important stories for us to listen to and to hear and to deeply reflect on in terms of our future. We'll be back just after a quick break. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. 
Before the break, we talked about the low point that we'd reached in Australian social welfare and social security policy particularly, highlighted most recently by robo-debt, but apparently far more broad than we've discussed. And the stories that Sharon's shared with us of the work that she's done with families who are living in poverty and the impact that that has on parents and their children are quite extraordinary. And Sharon, just before the break, you began to discuss with us some of the solutions that we might have in front of us. So I'd really like to flesh this out. Can we turn to what we need to do next? Can we start perhaps with the big picture, a a global context? I know you work around the world and have colleagues all all scattered, scattered globally. What's your assessment of how dominant global paradigm shapes social policy within other countries? Anna-Greta, I think this is really important to understand that global context. And um, I teach a course called Global Social Policy, and we we tease out in that course, you know, the the way in which those things that happen within countries are very often shaped not just by domestic policies and ideas, but by global policies and ideas. Um, and we often talk in, in the things that I teach, but more broadly, Um, about what we experienced globally through the 1980s when we saw the rollback of the state under the neoliberal policies that that were enacted by Pinochet, by Thatcher, by Reagan and others who followed their lead. And what we saw then globally was the abandonment of people to their fates, the abandonment of a commitment to the common good, and that occurred at the same time as we saw people increasingly being told that they could and they should in the terms of Ulrich Beck and Elizabeth Gernsheim Beck, script their own lives, become responsible for their own futures. And, of course, globally we've seen that idea of people being able to script their lives played out in social media in that real performance that we see in social media where people present their lives as being something amazing and to be aspired to. So all of those things in the global context shaped the way policy was was playing out. But in the past decade or two, we've seen some very different and no less problematic things emerge as we've seen a different type of capitalism rise. And what we see in the type of capitalism that's playing out globally, that's often called 21st century capitalism or or financialized capitalism, what we see is everything being commodified. And we talked a little bit about this when we talked earlier about the PwC crisis. So the way, what what we see is, is social policy being commodified. And we see that happening when those big companies reap massive profits by advising governments about how to deal with social problems without ever taking account of the lived experience or the real lives of people who need support. So how do we start to think differently about this? And Anna Greta, you know that I'm a big fan of guy standing, and I know that you are as well. We've had guy standing on the pod a couple of times. And standing makes some really interesting and powerful points about some of the things we need to shift. And he talks about the way in which big corporations and and some industries have profited from the commons. He talks about big pharma, which profits from research and development that's often publicly funded. And what's more, the benefits of that publicly funded R&D, the medicines, 
the vaccines, like COVID vaccinations, are often withheld from those who are poorest and those who are most vulnerable in the name of profit. And Guy Standing also talks about big tech profiting from the data that it collects from all of us. He talks about big finance, which profits from the flows of capital that that benefit the very few. And one of the really disturbing things that we've seen in recent years globally is the way in which microfinance, which was once operated by not-for-profit organisations, moving into the realm of for-profit organisations and microfinance that was once used to support the most vulnerable being used to extract profit from the most vulnerable. And so what Standing argues is that we need to apply levies globally to those profits that come from the commons because he argues that when profits come from the commons, the benefits should flow to all, not to a few. And so what we need globally is much stronger regulation to ensure that the commons are not pillaged in ways that damage us, not just now, but for generations to come. And so when we think about what we need to do globally and how we can think about about shifting that global paradigm, I always think of Bob Deacon's arguments, and Bob Deacon was one of the leading thinkers in global social policy. And he argues that what we need to think about globally is redistribution away from the obscene hoarding of wealth and power by a few, that we need regulation to prevent the gross exploitation of both people and the planet, and we need respect for the human rights of all, not just respect for the intellectual property rights or the right to accumulation, which isn't actually a right, of the very few. We need to respect the human rights of everyone. And I think those three R's of Bob Deacon's give us a different way of thinking globally um, in ways that then flow on to domestic policymaking and thinking. What an extraordinary framework to start our solutions discussion with. And as you talk about the commodification of everything, Sharon, I, of course, think about our conversation with Sharon Friel when we talked about the commercial determinants of health. And so the policy dynamic follow, then not just on social policy, but very much leading into ill health and disease. And for listeners who haven't caught up with Guy Standing, can I highly recommend you start by listening to the massive attack track in which that features Guy Standing. Uh, It's a track called Utopia, uh, and you can find it fairly easily online. These ideas of redistribution, regulation and respect seem to be extraordinary principles to start with. And Sharon, I'd love us to move from that global context back into the Australian landscape. Before the break, you began to describe some of the principles that might allow us to contend with child poverty and, of course, care was at the centre. This dynamic between the egalitarian and the individual, the caring versus the cruel policy approaches seem to be tremendously important discussions. Sharon, how do we begin to reimagine social policy in Australia and, and do you have optimism that this might already be underway? Look, I, I think it is underway. Um, we've we've seen very different language being used by by the current government, but I think robo debt and the Royal Commission and the the remarkable findings that have come out of that Royal Commission also give us the possibility of a really significant turning point. And if we read 
that report from RoboDebt, from, from, from what happened during RoboDebt, you know, the report of the Royal Commission, what comes through so powerfully is the need for greater accountability, but also the need for compassion, for empathy and care. And I do think that that first recommendation of the Royal Commission into RoboDebt is a pretty good place to start. That recommendation says that Services Australia, and we could say all government departments, must design its policies and processes with a primary emphasis on the recipients that it's meant to serve. Now, that first recommendation is actually really remarkable because it shifts us back to saying, what are we trying to achieve through social policy and who are we trying to achieve it before? So this gives us the opportunity for a reimagining of social policy that really puts people at the centre it's a reimagining that's really simple, but it's also radical, and it's a reimagining that would be transformative. A reimagining that would be transformative. Sharon, it strikes me that critiquing 21st century capitalism does sit at the core of today's discussion, as it has sat at the core of many of the discussions we've had in the last few years. It's quite remarkable to me as a cardiologist how often economics comes up in discussion of social policy and and how some of the assumptions that are built into our current model really do uh, benefit from challenge. And of course, our federal government at the moment are thinking about this, with the current government moving perhaps towards a wellbeing approach, or certainly there's active consultation around this. Sharon, what are your thoughts about a wellbeing economic approach? Do you think it will bring the changes that we need? Look, I, I think it really has the potential to, Anna Greta, and I think to some of the conversations that we've had um, over time uh, around what a wellbeing approach might deliver with people like Catherine Trebek and Millie Rooney. And I think we we can see how thinking about a wellbeing framework gives us a real opportunity for change. And I think that's so important. And, and for many of us, the change that the government's talking about isn't happening fast enough. Um, perhaps it's not bold enough, but it is really exciting to hear a government, to hear the Treasurer talking in such different terms, using the language of well-being, and even occasionally using the language of care. I think that really matters. And so I think we do have an opportunity to imagine or to reimagine what our collective soul is, what our values are, and whether we're prepared to be a harsh, cruel country or whether we want something that's so much more and something that's so much better. But I would add to that, that if we are thinking in any serious way about well-being, we have to end poverty, and in particular, we have to end child poverty. And I'm purposefully using the language of ending child poverty. We sometimes see the language of reducing child poverty, but we're a wealthy country. And to put it in the simplest terms, when I work, and I've worked with many, many hundreds of children who are living in poverty, if we only talk about reducing child poverty, I could not possibly decide which of those children I would be happy to say they will remain in poverty because we're not going to end it. So ending child poverty is the scaffold for well-being. 
There can be no well-being when children grow up in poverty, when they can't access essential services, when they never see their parents who are too busy eking out a living in precarious low-paid jobs, when they have no safe place to play. So if we don't explicitly focus on ending poverty, then a well-being framework can have a kind of an upward gaze that supports those who are better off but leaves many behind. So the well-being approach really gives us an opportunity. And this may be a once-in-a-generation, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So we need to grasp it. And we need to commit to doing and thinking differently. But to do that, we need to commit to ending child poverty as the essential foundation for well-being. Sharon, you're giving me some of the spine-tingling sensation that I felt as I stood outside the Civic Theatre in Wagga, a time where you can see a future which is quite different, uh, a place in which there is no childhood poverty and in which we care for each other as the centre of our policy approach. I could listen to you talking about these issues for so many more hours. It's been wonderful to have you on the other side of the desk, but we will need to bring today's conversation to a close. I'd very much like to hear you tell us what you think are the core principles that need to sit at the centre as we reimagine and reshape social policy here in Australia. Where do we start? Well, Anna Greta, there are really quite a concrete policy actions that we can take around child impact assessments, around things like um, the European Child Guarantee that aims to ensure that all children have access to essential services. But you asked about principles, and I think it's principles that are most important in helping us to reimagine and to genuinely reshape. So the first thing that I'd say is that we need to value time, especially time that is spent with children. Um, And we need to stop seeing parents' contribution to society only through their paid employment. Look, I think it's a tragedy that in so many of the discussions about the urgent need for high quality and affordable childcare um, and early childhood education, children are depicted only as burdens that prevent their parents from working. And to me, those depictions directly highlight values and priorities that we need to change. So we need to value time, time together. And we also need to understand how 60,000 years of Indigenous culture can be central to the reimagining that we need to do in social policy, but in so many other areas. But fundamentally, we need to value compassion, we need to value empathy, and we need to value connectedness And we need to ask how social policy can meet those values. And Anna Greta, as as we've so often said on this podcast, we need to value care and caring. Professor Sharon Bessel, it has been extraordinary to discuss how we might reimagine social policy. I'm deeply inspired to see how things emerge in the next little while. And it strikes me that things will change quickly. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us today. Thanks, Sandra Greta. It's it's been a real treat to be on the other side of the mic and to be able to share some of this research and thinking. Thank you. Listeners, what an extraordinary conversation. I hope you have enjoyed this as much as I have. Sharon's wisdom in this space is really quite extraordinary and the generosity with which she shares her experience and the stories that she's collected is quite profound. 
My takeaway message is valuing time, valuing relationships, and at its core, how we value care. These changes would be extraordinarily transformative for our lives across a whole range of society. It's one of those times where we would see benefits for everyone. Listeners, we'll continue these discussions around reimagining social policy over the weeks ahead, and we've got an extraordinary lineup of guests uh, ahead of us. This podcast is, of course, produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed today on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about our podcast. We love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or at the Crawford School of Public Policy LinkedIn page. And with that, that's all we have time for today. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.